G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host Ardeet. Today is actually Friday, the 16th of February, 2024, and our topics this week are fuel efficiency standards, possible savings for drivers, and a funding boost for the ghost bat drone project of course we have our two ticks town talk and then we'll jump into this week with australian history and we'll finish off as always with a forex bottle top question but before we get into all of that today is friday we're recording a second episode this week because next week i'm going to be heading down south uh so we're going to set up an early uh, an early episode. So it really hasn't been a, lot, a week since we spoke last, but Valentine's Day happened a couple of days ago. So I'm going to stitch you up and say, what's been going on? I'm sure you got a little story to say. <laughs> Good idea. It's funny you should say, you should say that. Uh, f- first off, look, I'll, I'll answer that. I'll answer your question second. I just want to say a Shout out to the big green shed that's uh, Bunnings and also Audi for just ease of return. It's uh, something that in the past used to be such a pain in the neck, um, but we had the, oh, the, yeah, can't yeah. fault Bunnings. It's fantastic. Oh, it's, had the the weather station might recall that I bought. I don't know whether something happened in the storm that we had here, but the display stuffed up and. You just turn, turned up and said, this is it, right, okay, just get a new one, off you go. And it's just so easy. And also, too, because we've got the power pass thing, you've got the receipts on the, the phone. And there's no, it, there's none of the old sort of um, way that things used, used to be where it was sort of, you almost felt like you're under interrogation and, you know, what's your motives for doing it? It's just sort of like, oh, yeah, these things happen. Let's uh, return it. And Audi as well, we'd, we'd popped into, uh, Audi to get so I wanted to get a bug zapper that they'd they'd had. I'd been keen to get a bug zapper for a while. This turned up and thought, oh beauty, we'll grab that. And we saw a couple of other things and unfortunately we had a little bit of a, a shopper's bloodlust and we thought, oh, that'll be good for organizing this, that and the other. And when we got home, wife looked and said, Oh, I don't reckon we should have got the, got them. And I sort of agreed. So she uh went went down the next day, just said, Look. We we had a bit of shopper's bloodlust on this. We don't actually think uh, we should have got them. And it was oh yeah, that's okay. No worries. Here's the here's the refund. It's just so easy. I yeah. So I was very very pleased with them. So a bit of a, a shout out to them. Your question <laughs> on uh, on Valentine's Day. Um, I was at the um, the the blood bank doing the, the the plasma thing, and the the bloke whose name happened to be Lincoln, that he was the nurse uh, doing it, and that's a DK and I were chatting beforehand about a tornado up north that's just been cyclone, cyclone. Uh, sorry, tornado. God, cyclone. Thank you. Um, a, a cyclone, and it's just uh, just been named. And I said, oh, that's funny. <laughs> so I'll tell you about it in the story. So I was there, and uh, he sort of looked up and he goes, "Ah, oh, so what are you going to do for Valentine's Day?" And here's how to answer a question without answering. And I said, "Ah, oh, when is it? <laughs> what day is it?" <laughs> and he looked at me and said, "Ah, oh, 
I'm getting nothing then. <laughs> he said it's today. Oh, okay. Valentine's Day, we don't do anything. You know, we, I was just about to say we sometimes might do something. I'm just trying to think the last time we did anything. Um, it's no non-event, complete, <laughs> complete non-event for it. We might, we might wake up and say something, but I hadn't even, it wasn't, I hadn't even crossed my mind that it was there. So, uh, that might be highly unromantic, but, uh, but Thursday did go out and do the, uh, uh, no lights, no like or dancing. So yeah, Thursday was our adventure day, but yeah, Valentine's day was just another day. What about you? What did you get up to, you big old romantic? <laughs> I I sort of stitched my wife up because we don't we don't normally do anything for Valentine's Day, and I told her that we weren't doing anything for Valentine's Day, and we agreed we weren't doing anything to Valentine's Day. But <laughs> uh, I pulled a sneaky and went out and bought her a dozen roses and chocolate and a lovely card and some other things and uh, it continued to act like nothing uh, oh, and a balloon, uh, a love heart balloon with helium in it and stuff. So, And as she walked into the house, it was all there set up and everything like that. And then she felt really bad because she was like, I didn't get you anything. And I was like, I know. Uh, I actually don't want anything. I want to do this for you. That's, I, I like, I genuinely don't care. Uh, and she felt so bad and guilty about it, which was not my intention at all. Um, I was like, my Valentine's Day, to me, the the gift you're giving to me is appreciating the gift I gave to you. Like, I don't, I genuinely don't really care about Valentine's Day. And I know that we, you know, said that we weren't going to do anything. So, um, so then she ran out and... To be fair, she she knows me so well, and she bought me a, a dozen instead of a dozen roses. She went and bought me a dozen uh, craft beers, a bunch of ah, different ones ah, that I hadn't I hadn't funny. tried before. So I was I really appreciated that, and um, so it all went well. But normally we don't do anything for Valentine's Day, and I was a bit cheeky this year. Um, I thought it'd be oh, a, that a, is a, little, a bit cheeky. That could have backfired. Yeah, I thought I'd be. It would be a nice little surprise. But um, normally we sort of do something like the week before or something like that, which we did do. Um, we went out for dinner and stuff. Um, sorry, out for lunch. Um, and so, but I just I don't know. It just sort of um, tickled my fancy, I guess, on the day. It was a spare of the moment thing. I got what did you say? <laughs> shoppers, enough. shoppers, blood. Bloodlust, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a good, good term. But uh, I too, I concur with uh, what you said about the, the big green shed bunnings. Uh, the, uh, the 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 it is so painless returning stuff uh, at bunnings, and they're always so excellent. Uh, they don't really ask any questions. To be fair, they kind of don't care. Um, you bought from here, you <laughs> Maybe your that's at the heart of it, yeah. <laughs> that's it. It's just if you got your receipt, you got it from here, bing, bang, boom, you know. Uh, I, I returned a whippersnipper that I had uh, that I don't know what happened to it. Uh, something happened to the carby and I just couldn't get it to run properly. Um, I took it back and probably 
nine months after I bought it. Yep. Uh, and she was just like, yep, cool. She was like, do you want a, do you want a refund? Do you want a credit? Do you want to replace it? I was like, oh, I'm happy with it. I just want the whippersnipper to work. So I just went and got a new one and swapped yep. it out and it was easy as that. Um, and I've had that whippersnipper ever since. This was, oh shit, this was like 10 years ago. Um, oh, and so that's I interesting. must have just got a dud one because the one I've got. Yeah. I've had for that that long and it works so well. So, um, yeah, absolutely incredible service at Bunnings. I've always had had a good service at Bunnings. I didn't know. I've never returned anything to Aldi, so I didn't know they were much the same. So, oh, that yeah, very much, very much the same. But it's interesting you say. It, it sounded like you had a sort of a bit bit of a tinker around with it, a bit of a dick around with it, see if you could get it going, and probably thought the same. Like I, I sort of played around with it, had a bit of a – I mean, it's because it, the thing that's stuffed up on the weather station was the internal um, dis- display that sits on the, the, the bench and something went wrong with the LCD. So I went through sort of basic troubleshooting and that, and I was thinking, oh, I'll get out the multimeter and see, you know, what's coming out of the, um, the little war wart on the, the – and then I thought – or I can just put it back in the box because I can, we t- we tend we have a system where when we when we you buy something like that um, the fridge in the garage you put the box on top of the fridge and we label it with something like that one I thought it's it's an electronic I'll give it I'll give it two months um, and if it's fine within that two months I can chuck the box out but if there's an issue I'll keep the box so we just put a post-it on there saying yeah d- dispose of in. Yeah, you know, March 2024. Just so you can go by whenever you look at it. You think, oh, that that's a box that can go out. Uh, so I still had the box for it, but I thought I can start dicking around with all that, or I can just put it in the box, go down to Bunnings, and say, "Give me another one, please." So, yeah, look, I um, <laughs> I'm, I, I normally don't keep the boxes. Uh, I'm not even that good because consumer law in Australia, you don't have to have the the original packaging. You do have to have proof no. of purchase, but that yep. doesn't have to be a receipt. Um, and you don't have to have the original packaging, so I normally throw everything out. But I did, and to be fair, I was sort of pushing it because I, I went to Bunnings to purchase a new driver. Uh, and I said to the bloke in the tool shop, he came up to me and said, oh, you know, do you need help? And I said, oh, I'm actually just seeing how much the, the driver's skin is just because... I've got one, but I've basically flogged it out. And he said, oh, well, there's a, I think he said there was a three-year warranty on it. When did you buy it? And I was like, oh, I'm not really sure. I'll have a look. And what I quite often do is I'll take a photo of the receipt and email it to myself um, with the name of the product. So I had a look and I found the receipt or a photograph of the receipt. And it was about two and a half years ago. Um, And I was like, I've used this so much that I've, I have basically flogged it out. It's no real fault of the tool. Uh, And anyway, I thought, ah, we'll give it a go. Took it back. He looked at it, had a go, and he was like, yeah, and just go grab a new one off the shelf and (laughs) replaced it. So um, I was like, man, I feel bad because, you know, uh, it's not really the fault of the tool. I've just used it so much. Uh, and But I still got a replacement, so it saved me uh, a couple hundred bucks, which I'm oh, pretty happy fault. about. So it's one of those things that sometimes, you know, you, at the end of the day, I spent a lot of money at the uh, the Big Green Shed. It's by far, in a way, my, my uh, largest uh, shopping expenses of the year yeah. is at that place. So, you know, it's nice to get something back from them every now and again. 
Yeah, and look, it is the type of thing too that does keep you going back. And look, if they have offered a three-year warranty in that, for an example, um, you know, the warranty doesn't come with a condition that you can only use it for, you know, ten minutes every week. You know, it's it's there. It's it's essentially a type of insurance where they just have to, you know, average up what's going to happen because some people will use it for like you know one hour a month. Other people will be you know, absolutely flogging it, so yeah, swings and roundabouts. But um, they don't seem to be they don't seem to be uh, going backwards in their success. So they seem to be doing something right. Exactly, and you're right. You know, at the end of the day, what they purchase it for and what they sell it for, the cost to them is insignificant compared to what repeat customers are. And obviously, that's their whole business model in it. So anyway, and, we and need to move they, on. They, they almost got a free ad out. They pretty, pretty much got a free ad out of us. <laughs> they yeah. bloody well did, didn't they? We are <laughs> not sponsored by Bunnings, but if Bunnings would like to sponsor us, I probably wouldn't say no. Now, <laughs> we need to move on to new fuel efficiency standards. The Albanese government has unveiled its long-awaited plan for fuel efficiency standards for new cars while highlighting potential savings of $1,000 a year and predicting a coalition-led scare campaign, which we'll get into in a minute, the scare campaign, but it absolutely has already started. The proposed model would place a yearly cap on the emissions output of new cars sold in Australia to incentivize car makers to supply low or zero emission vehicles and penalise companies that do not. Legislation required to create the standards which only apply to new passenger and light commercial vehicles would be introduced to federal parliament in the first half of 2024 and be effective from January 2025. Australia, along with Russia, remains one of few countries in the OECD without any standards. Industry analysts have routinely warned manufacturers of treating Australia as a dumping ground for heavily polluting vehicles due to the lack of penalties. The Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen pitched the new standards as a cost of living measure, given that new vehicles sold in Australia are 40% less efficient than those sold in the EU. He said Australians are paying more than they need for petrol. Car manufacturers that failed to meet the standards across the entire fleet would face a financial penalty from the 1st of January 2025, and the proposed fine is $100 for every gram over the target. So that's going to add up pretty damn quick. And I, I want to stress this again. The car manufacturers that failed to meet the standard across their entire fleet... So with this, what I'm suspecting that it's going to be is that the the targets are across the entire fleet. So you can sell, uh, you know, light vehicles such as utes and things like that, um, that may be more polluting than, say, some of the hybrids and and things like that. And it will kind of equal out across across the whole fleet range. However, the specifics are yet to be seen, but that's that's kind of the, the gist of what we're getting so far. An analysis released by the government claimed that by 2028, the standards would save a new car owner $5,170 over five years. It also suggested that over the life of the vehicle, Australians would save about $17,000 by paying less money for fuel. 
I want to sort of caveat those figures for fuel, though, because... Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all well and good to speculate the cost of fuel. Fuel is incredibly volatile in its costing, of course. Uh, so you may actually end up saving significantly more than that for fuel uh, because, of course, the cost of fuel is generally trending upwards. Uh, however... You know, no one has a crystal ball. We're not really sure what's going on. Um, but, you know, t take that, those figures with a grain of salt. The NRMA described the new standards as a responsible and achievable option that would reduce emissions, can save consumers money and increase competition. The NRMA chief executive, Ronald Lund, has said that Australia could not continue down the path of voluntary targets as it's left us behind when it came to choice. And the NRMA is strong advocates for choice so that motorists can buy the new cars they wish to drive. To be fair, uh, not, not to be mean to Mr. Lund, but that is a really vague statement to make. <sighs> The climate change minister, Chris Bowen, said, let me predict a few scare campaigns. This is not a requirement on car manufacturers not to send any particular brand or model to Australia. It's not like a restriction on what Australians can buy. You can still buy a used SUV or ute or whatever you like. And like clockwork... The Nationals leader, David Littleproud, accused the government of trying to take away the country ute and discriminating against regional people. He said, if you take away particularly utes, they're tools of trade, particularly for people, not just tradies in the cities, but also people in the bush. And if you put a ton on the back of an electric ute at the moment, you don't get far. He's not wrong, but as predicted by... right. I mean, he is right, but as predicted by Chris Bowen... Chris Bowen, the, the the particular legislation as it as it is suggested so far, uh, is like I said, it's going to be across the entire fleet. So there really shouldn't be any change to the Utes that exist in Australia. I can only see a few exceptions, and that's with there are some manufacturers like Isuzu that only sell the MUX and DMAX, a Ute and an SUV version of that Ute. That's their entire range to the quote-unquote consumer market. They obviously build trucks and sell heavy vehicles and stuff like that. So for them, their entire fleet is two vehicles. Mm. Both of them aren't particularly, uh, you know, they're both big, heavy diesels. They're not exactly the most fuel efficient. They're also not over the top in in their um, inefficiency, like they're in, they're, they are quite efficient vehicles given their size. And I think this is kind of where it's going to catch some of these manufacturers out and potentially maybe even push them out of the market, which I think is probably a better argument for someone to say, like David Littleproud to make, rather than taking the angle of, oh, you city people just hate people from the bush. I don't know that that's necessarily true in this situation, but I can definitely see where there are potential problems going to come with certain manufacturers that don't have a massive fleet that they can go, oh, cool, uh, you know, we can, we'll release a couple of electric vehicles or a few hybrids, and then we'll just leave these ones as, as, as they are. For example, I think Toyota is probably not really going to be hit at all by these pieces of legislation. I, I would imagine they probably don't have to even change anything in their lineup mm. because 
all of their smaller vehicles are all hybrids as standard today. Um, and they have an, across the whole range, it, they've got hybrids available. So for them, they probably already come under the targets and are just like, sweet, you know, less competition. So if anything, you know, maybe Toyota's sponsoring this piece of legislation. <laughs> yeah, I was, was wondering that in the, yeah. Uh, they are the most popular car manufacturer in Australia, but, um, uh, that, you know, there are their competition with, say, Mazda. Uh, Mazda, as far as I'm aware, doesn't have any hybrids. They do have incredibly efficient uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. But as far as I'm aware, I don't think they have any hybrids. Same as Mitsubishi. Well, they have a, a limited range of hybrids, I should say. So I think this is going to kind of put you know, uh, a fire under the bum of some of these car manufacturers to maybe release some of the models or some of the newer models that they've got in the pipeline to, to speed up. But the fact that this piece of legislation is meant to go into effect uh, or, or to go through federal parliament uh, in the next couple of months and it's going to take effect from January 2025, that's not a lot of time for oh. manufacturers to to actually make some changes. And I, 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 I sort of – it frustrates me when they, they – um, point to Europe and say, well, Europe has a lot more efficient cars. Europe has a lot smaller cars than us, generally yep. speaking, as well. And we're not talking about the the Yank tank utes that they have, the big trucks. We're not talking about those. Obviously, those are an outlier, and we've spoken about them before. But just generally speaking, you know, European cars are quite often very small, economical, hatchback-style vehicles that, whilst they are popular in the cities here in Australia, once you sort of leave those metro areas, those cars aren't as popular because they have some massive downsides where they're just not as comfortable if you're driving long range or if you need, like David Littleproud says, if you live in the bush, you've almost certainly got a ute or a big big uh, SUV for specific reasons because you need those sort of vehicles out where yep. you live. Yeah, exactly. I, I agree with you. That's the uh, comparison to the – I mean, I, I don't even know if you could fit uh, three clowns in some of the European cars. They're so small. Uh, I think you hit upon the – the bit about this that I just is basically think is bullshit, and that's all the the, the figures. There's so many, there's so many qualifiers, um, so many things of, so many uses of like could and should, and then projecting a number of years away. And that, look, they seldom inspire me with with confidence. I, I also think with labour, unfortunately for them. Uh, so far failing to deliver on their energy bill reduction promises, I don't think people are going to be um, particularly trusting about this latest projection. So, look, the actual the actual costs and, and the other thing is too, when you get a an electric car, like if you get a, a hybrid, you're still paying for some, uh, you're still paying for fuel, uh, a bit, a very small uh, amount. Um, but if you're talking about an electric car, you're still having to pay to top it up with um, with power. Yeah, that's just, that's just not free, and no. the costs of that, as I understand it, are going up. They're still not in anywhere near the fuel. It's still you know it's, st- it's still a good deal, but you know it still still stings. And uh, I have hmm, this might surprise you. I have very little faith. That once there's a whole captive market onto uh, electrically uh, electric 
electricity as fuel rather than you know, fossil fuels as fuel. They'll just find another way to to gouge people. So, I yeah, I I don't have much faith there. So look, the, the costs of and, and everything. That's my feelings on it. I like the idea of electric cars. Um, there's always a thing in the back of my head, and I can't help feeling if if they're such a good idea, then why are so many governments forcing to the to use them in a in a stick approach as they've got here? And I do get it. It's all the yeah, it's the emissions, the environment, all the usual things that they fly over for in their private jets to discuss every couple of years and make meaningless <laughs> pledges about. So yeah, I get that's the driver for it, and yeah, we're all going to die. Um, so yeah, the listeners might pick up a little bit of cynicism there. Uh, <laughs> how, Just a little bit. <laughs> however, I, I love the idea of electric cars, and I think whilst uh, Little Proud's comment about just how unsuitable they are for uh, you know, a lot of tradies and a lot of people in the bush and a lot of people who use utes and light trucks, uh, those people are also thinking people. And the day that you can buy a ute that's uh, battery-powered or hybrid power and does the same for uh less fuel still gives you the range still gives you the the carrying capacity um but it's cheaper to run that's the day you're going to get people just swap over and i know yeah. oh, look, I, I love the sound of it i love the sound of a good <coughs> meaty engine and that but yeah if you're if you're like you I've, yeah, I've met enough farmers to know that one of the things they're always looking at is the cost of things and if a farmer's sitting there thinking, well, well, shit, it's going to, if this electric vehicle is still going to take me, you know, up up the road for my groceries, you know, two or 300 Ks and back, I can still sort of throw a ton in the, the back of it and get round and plug it into the solar when I get back and my maintenance costs are lower, my, my um, power costs are lower and the life of the vehicle is just as good. They'll swap. There's no reason whatsoever. I mean, that's... To me, I think that's a certainty. A hundred percent. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, there's a huge advantage to electrical vehicles that we, we we've already seen with some. The problem is, it's for most people, it's that the range or the range anxiety, I should say, because for for a lot of the people, I think range realistically isn't actually uh, a, a big issue. Most people don't travel you know, hundreds of kilometers in a day or, or anything like that. Um, however, for a lot of people, you know, outside of the CBDs, outside of the the really built up metro areas, there is a lot of driving that goes on. Um, and as a result, you, you need something that's going to be more reliable. And I think... You know, supercharging and stuff like that. The electrical infrastructure is—it's like the technology is there, but mm. the the infrastructure doesn't quite exist here in Australia yet. And I know it is happening, and I think it is a bit of a chicken and egg type situation where I think there's a lot of people that would actually really, really want an electric vehicle, uh, but they are priced very highly. They are very expensive, uh, and the charging infrastructure along our highway system is still 
in its infancy. It's it, it's happening, but it's not happening fast enough. And it is a bit like, well, why would I buy an electric vehicle if I know there's only a handful of charges on my way and they're in obscure locations or I pull up to a charger and there's, you know, they're all full or whatever. So there's that frustration, I think, with the rollout of the electrical infrastructure. Um, look, I actually think the hybrid is the best the best way I, I, yeah, I sort of I like, like what I Toyota's like the hybrids done too. Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it sort of negates that idea. Um, and, and the plug-in hybrids are quite good where yes. it, it does have a larger battery pack. So you can plug it in. So when you are driving around town, you know, just going to the shops and stuff like that, uh, those short trips, which the vast majority of people are doing day to day, you know, the commute to work and stuff like that, th- those first say 30 or 40 Ks, you're just running on the electric motor. So for, say, a lot of people, maybe 70, 80% of the driving that they're doing, basically you are you, you are using an electric car. And then, yeah. and then for the remaining time, you've got that internal combustion engine that kicks over. I think that's the sweet spot for Australia as it exists right now. The problem is, is that hybrids obviously come with uh, a higher price tag than than um, regular internal combustion engines. And for a lot of people, when they're buying a new car, you know, they're looking at it going, oh, well, that one's 10 grand more. Is it really worth it? You know, I, I just see in the minds of people, I think it, it's where, it, where we prefer to spend less money now uh, and... Spend 100%. more along the way. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I know exactly what yeah. you, you mean. That's that's exactly what I was thinking. Somebody's you can you can say, well, look, you're going to um, save this amount of money over this time, but uh, a lot of people are going to think, yeah, but I'm not going to have to spend ten thousand extra bucks now. Exactly. I'll, I'll see if they come down in price. I'll just keep this one for I'll, – I'll just get this one and see what happens in the, the future. You're spot on. And I think that's kind of where – I sort of hope this legislation kind of pushes it perhaps. Um, I know there was talk. There's there's a, a new Toyota Land Cruiser Prado coming out, I think, later this year. Um, and they were talking about the potential of a hybrid version. I know Mitsubishi's been talking about a hybrid version um, of their range. And I think Mazda were talking about it with uh, the BT50, their ute and things like that. There's there's lots of sort of murmuring in the, in the car industry about releasing hybrid versions of a lot of vehicles, but they just... I feel like they haven't had the push. The incentive isn't quite there to do it. Um, And I think with the public demand isn't really there either because I think a lot of people don't really probably fully understand what the benefit of the hybrid stuff is. Um, And so I think if, if... this kind of pushes it and the competition may drive some of the prices down, that's going to be a good thing. But at the same time, that's me wishful thinking. I am a little bit skeptical, same as you, that, look, you know, some of these industries need to stand on their own. Um, and if it is so much better, then ideally uh, the the value proposition to the customer will get it across the line. Yes. Obviously, that that's yes. not what's been happening. So... Um, 
I don't know. I just I, I I'm sort of torn because I can see the I can see the benefits of this legislation, but at the same time I look at it and go, but, but it's happening so quickly. You know, you can't. Uh, and there's there are manufacturers like there's the uh, Ineos uh, Grenadier that they only sell basically. Uh, it's a it's a hardcore full drive. Uh, it's basically what the old school Land Land Rover Defenders were uh, right. in their in their proper pure form, but it's a modernised version of it. It's an absolutely incredible vehicle. Uh, that's only just that. yeah. It's 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 they're not cheap. They're they're I think a hundred and something grand. Um, but it is if you're a hardcore off road enthusiast, that's you know the the sort of vehicle oh. to get on the market. Um, Sorry, and the problem having, is just just looked it up up there. I can see what you're saying. Yeah, okay. Like that's a manufacturer that only sells one vehicle in Australia. They only have one vehicle. They're going to release uh, a Ute version of it, I think, uh, either this year or the start of next year. Uh, but again, like I feel like this legislation unfairly penalises smaller manufacturers that example only make manufacturer vehicles like this. Because they're just going to get absolutely slammed. And the reality is they may just go, well, we're not going to sell it in Australia anymore. Why would we sell it in Australia? Or the price tag of those vehicles is going to go through the roof just to satisfy, to tick some boxes. So I don't know. I can sort of see the benefit, but at the same time, I I don't know. I I think there needs to be maybe exemptions carved out for some of these manufacturers and, and things like that. I don't know. Uh, or just no legislation at all in the first place, because I thought you there's two th- two things that you said. There. You, you made the sort of joke about the uh, yeah. I wonder if Toyota was involved in uh, you know, lobbying for or legislating for this, and then you know, made the co- comment of that Ineos one, and I'm thinking, well, that's a perfect example. Um, and oh damn, it was the second point you had made that was a. Oh, mate, I've made a lot of good points. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was one. So, look, I've, if it comes to me, I'll, I'll say to you. But no, it was, um, it, yeah, f- forget it. If it comes to me, I'll, I'll say it. it was It was something oh, something to do with, with the oh, – that's right. Uh, you just sort of alluded to, you said uh, something along the lines of how things are developing anyway, and I thought – this is possibly also part of the government jumping out in front of a parade where m- car manufacturers are going this way of their own accord anyhow and government want to turn around and say, oh, no, it's because of us, whereas yeah. car manufacturers are saying, look, if we can deliver something to our customers that's going to save them money on fuel and therefore it's going to make it more uh, appealing to us and you know, when, uh, electric motor, uh, motors are a lot easier to service than uh, combustion motors. Uh, we've still got an issue with disposal of batteries, but that's that's another question. Car manufacturers are moving towards that naturally because there's a, there's a demand for it. And I would suspect that if government did nothing, car manufacturers would get there on their own anyway because that's what people want. Yeah, like I said, they're already heading in that direction. Yeah, exactly. uh, and and the Toyota example is Toyota has uh, hybridized their entire fleet, mostly. Um, 
for all their, you know, like the Camrys, um, they're all they're all electric. That was one of the most, you know, the, one of the best selling vehicles in the entire world. Um, and so Toyota's doubling down on this, and as opposed to going fully electric, uh, whereas some other manufacturers like Hyundai are releasing electric versions of other vehicles and things like that. So different different manufacturers are kind of already making those. They're hedging their bets on which direction they're going. Toyota obviously is also sort of leading the market in uh, hydrogen fuel cell technology and things like that. So mm. the, the market's already kind of heading in that direction. And I think there are some vehicles that kind of r- targeting this legislation that they are, you know, a bit shit that are just kind yeah. of yeah. being sold off here. That's definitely happening. Um, but... Oh, I just, yeah, I just feel like this is a bit short-sighted. And as a result, what could happen is some of these uh, manufacturers just pull out of the Australian market and we will have less of a choice. Uh, yes, you'll still be able to buy second-hand vehicles because of these restrictions only only apply to brand-new vehicles. Um, however... Uh, uh, like a lot of these, uh, what do we call them? Yank tanks, the, the yeah. big trucks. Uh, yeah. I don't see how they how how's that going to work. How are they going to be allowed to to come in, or is it because they're imported, they're exempt, or something like that? I just you know, there's a lot of wishy washiness. We may have to come back to this piece of legislation when it goes into a draft uh, to really see how this is going to work because there's a lot of moving parts here that I just I can't wrap my head around without it completely destroying the automotive industry. Um, and basically, everyone's driving a Toyota or a Hyundai. Mm, good point. Well, let's do let's do that. Let's uh, let's take a note. Come back to it when we see a bit more uh, flesh on it. I think it's time for our two ticks town talk. Now, two weeks ago, I spoke about the Blue Lake in Mount Gambier, South Australia, and I promised that I would revisit the town. I didn't really get enough time. Uh, to to really dive into the history and the incredible geography that is the town of Mount Gambia. So that is the topic of this week's Two Tax Town Talk. So a little bit of history. Before the British colonization of South Australia, the Bundadigi or Boadic people were the original Aboriginal inhabitants of the area. And they referred to the peak of the volcanic mountain as Irim Balam, meaning home of the eagle hawk. But the mountain itself was called Barren. The peak of the dormant Mount Gambier crater was first sighted in 1800 by Lieutenant James Grant from the survey brig HMS Lady Nelson, and it was named after Lord James Gambier, Admiral of the Fleet, and it was the first place named by the British in what was later to become the colony of South Australia. Now, I did mention that last time, but... In 1835, Stephen Hentley led an overland expedition to explore the Mount Gambier region, and he was the first white man to climb the peak and view the Blue Crater Lake, the subject of the last, my last Two Ticks Town talk on the 6th of February. Stephen Hentley and his brothers, his six brothers, subsequently laid claim to the Mount Gambier in 1842 and established a sheep station there. 
Long story short, this was considered by the local Aboriginal people as a really bad idea and confl- <laughs> conflict ensued. Um, unfortunately, uh, a number of Abor- local Aboriginal people were killed, but the conflict did actually end up killing so many of the sheep that the Hentley brothers abandoned their sheep station. Can't have sheep station if you don't have any sheep. The post office was opened on, so fast forwarding, a bit of history. The post office was opened on the 22nd of September, 1846, and the town was incorporated in 1876. On the 9th of December, 1954, Mount Gambier was officially declared a city. As of 2021, it had a population of 26,734. So one of the bigger size of our two ticks town talks. The Mount Gambier urban area is located mainly along the northern slopes in the plain of the Mar Volcano of the same name, Mount Gambier, comprising several craters, part of, and it is part of the newer Volcanics Province complex of volcanoes, which is a volcanic field formed by the East Australia hotspot across southeastern Australia. It covers an area of 15,000 kilometres, which is 5.8 square miles, uh, for, sorry, 5,800 square miles, with over 400 small shield volcanoes and volcanic vents. Huh. Investi- never, heard, never heard of that. <laughs> wow. While I was investigating the East Australian hotspot, this sent me down a rabbit hole, which I can't talk about this week because there's just so much, but I'm definitely going to come back into a... F- in a future episode because this was also something I'd never heard about uh, and I think it'd be wildly interesting um, so put a pin in that remember because probably the next my, in, a, in a fortnight I'll probably come back to this so. um, but because of all this ancient volcanic activity that was going on in and around the city of Mount Gambia there actually exists a labyrinth of caves and caverns under the city one of which actually has an opening uh, which is open to the public, Inglebrett Cave. So a little bit of history about the cave. In 1885, Carl Inglebrett, a German immigrant, purchased a flour mill located nearby and converted the mill into a whiskey distillery. Sounds like my kind of guy. Inglebrett then decided that he would use the cave as a place to dispose of the waste from distilling. What? (laughs) The past was absolutely wild. Um, In May 1929, the land on which the cave is located was purchased by the then District Council of Mount Gambia and basically just sat dormant. And it wasn't until the 1960s that it was explored expressly for the purpose of of establishing uh, like a tourist site. And it was found that it was unsuitable for tourism as there wasn't really much to the system, mostly because... Uh, it had over 100 years worth of rubbish in it. And <laughs> in the 1980s, the cave was actually uh, uh, mostly cleaned up and a lot of the rubbish and debris was removed. Um, and as such, they realized the cave system was much more substantial than, than they had initially thought. And they, they quote-unquote, beautified the cave and it became open to the public. Uh, 
And over the last few years, there's been a rock fall that's blocked off access uh, at the end of one of the at the end of the cave, and that's actually begun to to open up. And you've been able to see through the cracks and confirm that there is a passage on the other side, and it's possible that the cave is substantially bigger than it is currently known to be. Uh, but the big big draw to Engelbrecht Cave is actually the cave diving. Um, which is definitely not something that I would like to do. Uh, (laughs) No, thanks. I I am a scuba diver, um, but uh, yeah, no, thanks. Cave diving. No, thanks. Uh, And look, whilst the, you can do a walking tour of the system and that takes probably about 45 minutes. uh, Most of the cave system is actually underwater. Uh, and at this point in time, divers, cave divers t- to the cave have approximately about 600 meters of cave to explore. Um, but as I said before, this actually may increase in the future. And the water is so clear that photos of the divers in the cave actually look like they're just floating in midair. Um, huh. Because you, you can't even see water basically at all um and i'm going to send you a photo let me just grab this photo and we're going to put it in the show notes as well um because it 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 does look a bit surreal um he's just it just appears to be hovering in midair um but the cave the cave diving is is sort of world-renowned um Wow, I see. Yeah, I see what you mean. Particularly, particularly as he's not blowing bubbles in that. It's just, in fact, yeah. If it wasn't, if it wasn't for the fact you think, oh, maybe he's just using that as a, the the uh, viewers will see once they have a look at this picture. It's it looks like he's got a pole that he's holding onto. Um, but yeah, you're right. It does look like he's just suspended. Here's another one, which. He- Again, it looks like they're floating, but you can see sort of the, the silveriness of, of uh, some air bubbles above them, which sort of reveal exactly what's going on. But um, honestly, just looking at these pictures gives me the heebie-jeebies. And oh, uh, same here. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> even though it is well lit up and everything like that, no thank you. But if you're, if you are someone that's listening to this going, Yep, I'd love to do some cave diving. Uh, <laughs> this is, uh, I've been told this is world-renowned and absolutely you should put it on your list of places to go. The beauty of it is is, is it, it's genuinely in the middle of uh, of, of the city. It's um, the, the cave system itself actually runs under uh, a number of houses uh, through through the, the local area. It, it is the entrance to the cave is on... The Princess Highway, uh, sorry, the Princess Highway, uh, which runs through the middle of, of the, the city of Mount Gambia. So it's it's not off the beaten tra- trail. It's literally on the main street, um, which just feels a bit unusual for something like this, but it is pretty cool. Now, there is also another curious little uh, public park in the middle of Mount Gambia, and it's called the Umpersen sinkhole now 
when most people think of a sinkhole, we sort of think, you know, roads collapsing or houses getting sucked into the ground or, or some sort of major disaster. But of course, we've got to remember there's so much ac- volcanic activity in and around the city of Mount Gambia or ancient volcanic activity, I should say, um, that thousands of years ago, a sinkhole or one of these uh, volcanic vents has partially collapsed and created uh, approximately 50 by 20 meter sinkhole, kind of like a big oval. Um, And because it was so long ago, it has built up a lot of topsoil in it. And very specifically, in 1886, a local man called James Umperson uh, began planting a garden inside the sinkhole for kind of the who's who of the local area. And he'd use the, at the time it was called the caves, but it's it's not a cave. Um, But he would use it for garden parties and primarily to escape the heat in summer because it is sunken down into the ground. Um, Wow. And today... It's an absolutely stunning terraced garden that is completely open to the public, completely free, and apparently it's the highest rated TripAdvisor location in Mount Campia. So, if you're there, interesting. If you're there, there's no excuse not to go. It's a pretty unique location in that it's basically a beautiful, almost botanical garden, just sunk into the ground. And so if you are heading out to Mount Gambia, where, of course, you can see the Blue Lake, spend some time underground, go and have a look at the cave systems that are there, and potentially in the future, those cave systems may expand significantly more than they currently are. It's interesting that it's got... Your um, comment about it being... Yeah, sort of so close to the the town, and I, look, I suppose in some ways, why why shouldn't it be? I suppose there's there's things closest to town, but those those are the type of things you expect to have to go you know, out of town for and check out. So that's that's interesting. It's there. That sinkhole garden sounds particularly appealing. Just when you said sinkhole, I I had the vision that you then got onto of you know cars falling into it and everything, but. Uh, being that collapse in there and then collecting that topsoil and then with that the garden, I thought, oh, that sounds that sounds like a very interesting feature. And it's uh, it's it's interesting that somebody's actually uh started out. What was what was the name of the bloke who who started the um uh Jane's Umperson. So it, it's oh, actually just sent me that photo. Excellent. Yeah, I've just sent you a, a wide lens photo of it. Um Oh, I believe, I believe, yeah, I believe it was like his personal property at the time. Um, and I think he was quite a wealthy man and he sort of built it up and there wasn't, because it wasn't, uh, like a public park like it is today, uh, mm. there wasn't a lot of infrastructure and I think getting down into it was quite difficult. You sort of had to scale the limestone cliffs, um, but it, it, it is sort of, when you look at the photo, it is, it is a bit of a sort of almost a natural amphitheater. And I would yeah. imagine that, and I, look, I don't know this, but I would imagine that uh, it would be quite a good venue to host some sort of 
reasonably small local event. Um, it's not big enough to have, you know, massive concerts or anything like that in there, but you could definitely have some cool, quite intimate little events. Um, actually, it would be perfect for a wedding or something like that. I don't know if, if that's available, but yeah. um, it, it is. It's truly, it's it's a beautiful location. Um, and I think it has a little bit of a microclimate in there because it is sort of down underground a little bit. Um, but yeah, it, it's just a cool little spot. Oh, very, very much. I, it's I would it, I, I would definitely be going. Uh, well, there's two things. I would definitely be going and seeing that uh, when I go to Mount Gambia at some time in the future. And I definitely won't be going and cave diving. So <laughs> there, there's a definite yes and a definite definite no. That's a, oh, that's interesting. And the beauty is they're both on the same road. They're both on the Princess Highway or uh, it's also <laughs> called the Jubilee Highway. They're both on them. So, you know, literally just down the road from each other. Ah, excellent. Very good. Let's move on. Funding boost for the Ghost, Ghost Bat a drone project. So the... Albanese government has confirmed a large injection of cash into the MQ-28A Ghost Bat program, which is being developed by Boeing for the Royal Australian Air Force, as well as potential overseas buyers. This was first unveiled in 2019 as the Loyal well, Loyal Wingman Program, the drone that uses artificial intelligence to target enemies and is designed to protect and support traditionally traditional military assets such as the F-35 in a contested environment. Speaking in Canberra, uh, it was also confirmed that work is underway on a separate secretive program. This is coming from uh, Mr. Conroy, who is the Defence Minister. Um, Pat Conroy. I didn't write his first name down. <laughs> um, uh, he was talking about, uh, he has confirmed work is underway for a secretive project for a smaller armed drone and an announcement will be made before Christmas. The RAF Air Commodore Ross Bender argues a large maritime nation such as Australia with its unique geography means uncrewed systems a critical factor for military planners. He said, and I quote, when you're trying to cover right across from the Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean across to the Pacific Ocean, you can only have a certain number of a certain aircraft and can only go to a certain distance in a certain time. Therefore, the ability to have uncrewed systems with a degree of autonomy that allow you to have, have that reach and persistence in that part of the region is really where I see the opportunities coming forward. The MQ-28A, or Ghost Bat, is a next-generation collaborative combat aircraft that involves 55 Australian companies and has already received $600 million in public funding. In March last year, the government agreed to the Defence Strategic Review recommendation to prioritise the MQ-28A program for collaborative development with the United States, meaning it would more easily share classified information with Australia's closest military ally. This is an interesting one because we've seen uh, the war in Ukraine has really demonstrated to us the value of unmanned aerial systems. Um, and look, this has been going on for quite a while. So this has been going on uh, first unveiled in 2019, but it, it didn't begin in 2019. It, it began, uh, you know, many years before that. And I know this 
this has been developed by Boeing Australia, but of course, um, I'm sure the US government has kept a keen eye on this development as it's been going along. Um, and basically, the Ghost Bat, for those unfamiliar, it, it sort of looks like a small military jet, basically. Um, it, it's it's not like a quadcopter drone or anything like that that we are seeing used in U- the war in Ukraine. It's more like a traditional fast jet aircraft, um, a bit smaller, with the idea being that uh, one or possibly multiple of these Ghost Bat drones would fly alongside a traditional aircraft like an F-35, um, and it would sort of augment that traditional air- aircraft's ability to strike at a further distance or perhaps uh, the F-35 can use them as like a like a decoy or can sort of spread them out to, to use their sensors to get a bigger view of the environment. Um, it could also use them to forward deploy for to, to launch missiles and things like that. So there's a, there's a lot of variation and it, it is quite a, a, a flexible platform, I guess, mm. um, to use in the future. This could also be used uh, and what uh, air... Air Commodore uh, Bender was sort of alluding to was that you can kind of use them as a reconnaissance drone, uh, a long range reconnaissance drone, instead of spending a lot of money and time uh, with our F 35 program and, and using those airframes. Because aircraft always have a lifespan, um, and every hour you put on it is one hour you, know, you lose, essentially. So the more that they're patrolling Australian airspace, the less time we have that that very capable, expensive platform oh, shit, um, yeah. can no longer be used in an, in in any capacity, <clears throat> and the maintenance requirements and da 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 da. So if we can use something like one of these a lot cheaper if something goes wrong and there's an accident or if in a combat scenario, um, they are uncrewed. So they're, you know, if they're lost, it's not such a big deal. Um, and we could have potentially hundreds of these based in the West Coast, based up in Darwin, based here on the East Coast. Uh, and we can kind of have them semi-autonomously flying around, sending back information, whether that be to like an F-35 uh, and uh, other aircraft um, or down to a base station for you know, giving the people the information and kind of using it as a as a long-range sensor uh, suite, really. Um, and then in the event that we're talking a combat situation, then we can use that drone to engage with other aircraft or enemy vessels or whatever it is. I can see this being used a lot for... Um, Illegal immigration, the boats uh, mm. coming in. We can use these as a form of, of reconnaissance. Um, I know some of our listeners have probably immediately imagined these drones going and blasting them out of the water. That's <laughs> not quite what I was where I was going, but um, it can sort of tell the Navy assets that are probably likely somewhere in the area anyway, hey, listen, we've got something over here, come and investigate, and that sort of stuff, which we we already do with other platforms. But again, every time those other platforms are flying, we're losing, um, you know, we're, we're that, that airframe hours are getting up and everything like that, and, and all the costs associated with that go up a lot more. So this just seems like money well spent, 
the problem is the money is being spent now on the R&D to get it up and running. It's a little bit like what we were talking about before. Spend the money now, save later on, or spend less now, spend more later. It's a bit like that. Yeah, it's a fair fair chunk of change, like hundreds of millions being thrown at it. And I just had uh, had to look up the... uh, the uh, the ghost bat uh, is species is the only Australian bat that preys on large vertebrates. So um, ultimately, that's going to include humans. But that little look putting putting my uh, my my things aside. I often sort of you know criticise um, you know how some of the what some of the government decisions are and government uh, projects are in terms of the system, how it is and the um, objectives that need to be met in a a modern um, military sense, I can see very good arguments for spending the money on this. I can possibly see better arguments for this than on some of the F-30, F-35, although I don't know if we've discussed that before. We won't go too much into it here, but I have heard, you know, from from people who I think know a, a reasonable amount, um, the F thirty five is not quite the dog that's made out to be, but uh, no one's really sort of said it's good value for money. So I reckon the truth somewhere in there. But for this, uh, and when you made that comment about something like, you know, having a, a ghost bat drone flying alongside of it and in, enhancing its uh, surveillance capabilities, forward-looking capabilities, and uh, potential sort of like decoy um, uh, capabilities, that made sense to me. I also thought it was good in this one that they're going to be spending money on smaller drones as as well. I've got to say, in terms of money being thrown at defence, I can see a very good argument for this because it's very forward-looking. It's more forward-looking than a lot of the other projects that I've, I've, I've heard about, and it's accepting something that is a already a demonstrated reality yeah look the we don't have time to really get into to the f-35 program that's sort of outside the scope of this um, episode but to give you an idea of of sort of to flesh out a little bit more what i'm sort of talking about the f-35 is a stealth fighter um it has the radar cross section of a about the size of a pebble that would fit inside your hand. So what that means is when a radar is looking for aircraft, for objects in the sky, um, it's going to see basically a flying pebble and it's not really going to know what to do with that information. And more than likely, uh, it's going to basically dismiss it as noise. The closer that aircraft gets to that radar uh, station, uh, the the larger the cross section sort of gets. Mm. The beauty of of that is with the appropriate um, like missile systems and sensors and things, you can basically destroy the enemy before they can see you. That's the sort of we're talking over the horizon. 
This was coming out of nowhere. You don't even know what's happening. You're dead. The problem with stealth aircraft is that as soon as you start turning on your senses, that kind of lights you up. It's like standing in a pitch black field no one, at night. No one can see you. But as soon as you turn on your flashlight to see the other people, they're going to see you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, it makes a, makes a lot, of, lot of sense to me. That's, that's a good analogy. Yeah, so imagine you, you know, you're wearing dark clothes, you're like, I'm stealth in a field. As soon as you turn on your light to see where they are, they're going to see where you are. What the benefit with the ghost bat is, is that the it, it sort of goes both ways, right? So the enemy needs to turn on their radar to see you. We're talking about aircraft, not not necessarily ground stations. And so, again, that lights them up. So when you're in a consistent contested airspace with other stealth aircraft like the Japanese uh, sorry the Chinese J20 or some of the some of the latest Russian aircraft uh, it sort of becomes a case of (laughs) who can find who first and and how far away you are and the beauty of the ghost bat is whilst it's not a traditionally stealth aircraft as I said it can link in with the very complicated avionics of the F-35 and as a result it could augment that if a J-20 picks up a ghost bat flying along, it doesn't necessarily know if there's an F-35 there or not. Mm. And so if it decides to engage right. that yep. ghost bat, yep. that F-35 can confirm where that is without essentially turning on its oh, on its flashlight. Right. Yep, so yep, I get you. It, it, whilst the ghost bat has a lot of other potential uses that I sort of explained before, the big benefit is in conjunction with existing manned platforms, whether it be the F-35 or like, I mean, it's being specifically designed to work with the F-35, but I think there's going to be a case where it can work with our F-18s and things like that. So you can also have one manned aircraft like an F-35 fly with say like 10 ghost bats that can be very, very far away from each other, and you can sort of saturate the area with aircraft without actually really using a lot of aircraft, if that makes sense. A lot of, a lot of manned aircraft. Um, yeah, so th- there's there's a lot of benefits that kind of like spiral out from this, and there's also a lot of misinformation going around about this from China and from Russia. They're sort of muddying the waters with, with China? this stuff, really. But well, because they, <laughs> you know, those guys. Propaganda from China. No, not, not China. Um, and again, with Russia, they see this, they see what we're doing and they kind of, you know, the the technology that goes into these sort of weapon systems is a lot further along than, than what those countries can uh, produce and it mainly comes down to things like stuff we've talked about before you know the the quality of of computer chips and things like that the quality of the software not so much the hardware it, these you know our regional enemies like china like uh russia can build small aircraft that's not that, that's not what's so good about the the ghost bat it's sort of that integration with other existing systems and things like that so there was a, graf- a graphic i saw too it had that uh, showed the, the the size of it and it was something like about 12 meters uh and you know, they had you know, a regular drone and a, a person for scale which was which was useful to me obviously because it's stuck in my head i thought oh, i can i can understand that that extra size 
really gives you a, a a platform in which you can deploy some high level firepower. Yeah, and it is designed to be somewhat stealthy like it has an internal weapons bay and stuff like that so for for our listeners that are probably maybe familiar with like the predator drones that we saw a lot in iraq and afghanistan they got big wings it's not like that it's more like think of a fighter jet without the canopy like the bubble the canopy that the pilot sits in if you just had that flat and it was gray that's kind of what the ghost bat looks like um it definitely looks pretty futuristic, and it is oh, pretty yeah. exciting that something like this is being designed and trialed uh, here in Australia. Like, it is being developed in Australia for Australia. And, and we've spoken before about having that higher-level manufacturing capability domestically and stuff like that. And I, I'm Whilst spending – so, the funding boost – I actually didn't say this, which surprised me um, – the funding boost was four hundred million, so it's going to bring it up to a one billion dollar cost so far. But uh, you know, a billion dollars over a five year period uh, isn't really a lot when you consider the money we spend on on other things. Um, and I do think this is this is a good investment. So just having a, a laugh there because I'm all, I'm old enough to remember once you once you started to get into. Uh, like, you know, um, government spending tens of billions, then hundreds of millions, and thinking, God, one day they're going to be spending a, a billion dollars on something, and now it's it's just you know after after the the one in the one building the billion, the rest is just a rounding error, and that used <laughs> to be yeah a state's economy. So basically, yeah, yeah, yeah it is, yeah. it is, it's it's. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, whether that's good or not, I don't know. But yeah. it is good to see Australia is on the cutting edge of defence technology. Uh, we're not always uh, in every in every area, but certainly with this, I think this is sort of money well spent. And and again, yeah, it, it's, I agree. It, yep. it's it's keeping Australians. Oh, sorry, I'm going to correct. Myself. It was that was coming out of my mouth. I thought, no, that's bullshit. I don't agree. I don't agree. It's money well spent as a principle, but in terms of this. I can see the argument for it. Just let me qualify that. <laughs> well, it, at the end of the day, uh, for a fighter capability, it does keep Australians, uh, or at least some Australians, out of out of combat. You know, sending one of these in instead of uh, a, a manned aircraft, in in theory, will protect and potentially save some of our people's lives, um, but. You know that's I, yet to be seen. I like. Uh, I think. I th- you know. I think one of the things I particularly like about this uh, is it from a defence force point of, of view. You know, I've made my, my made my views clear about um, the defence force being used for for aggression. But you uh, made the, you made the comment about uh, the, the advantages in. Um, Keeping basically track of our borders because they're, they're long borders, and you don't you, know, you don't want to be sending a pilot out in the what you say you, call, you airframes was what you used. Yes, yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's a different aircraft. Like we, we you know we have different aircraft for different purposes. Obviously, you know the most basic being we have transport planes for for cargo. We have transport yeah. planes for people. You know we have obviously fighter jets. Uh, 
we've got uh, uh, sort of uh, early warning radar type planes. We, we have a bunch of different aircraft, but they all kind of have their own niche purpose. Um, using something like this for reconnaissance. Of course, the Ghostbat airframes themselves <clears throat> obviously have a, a, a limited to lifespan. And the, and the question is going to be, and what yes. we kind of don't know is, how much is that going to cost? Is it going to be more cost effective than, say, <clears throat> the, the F-35 airframes? I would think so, but maybe not. It depends on how much we're manufacturing, you know. The cost oh, of the both S- assuming there. Yeah. That's right. The cost of the F-35 program initially was absolutely phenomenally expensive. Uh, but, but now those airframe costs have come down significantly because of the scale of production. If we're only making, say... 30, 40, 50, 100 of these, they are going to be very expensive. And then it's kind of going to become, uh, you're not going to want to use them because they're expensive. So then they're not, the whole point of it is kind of thrown out the window. Um, and look, and this is all yet to be seen. And I'm sort of speculating a little bit, but yeah. I think, you know, in the future, we'll we'll sort of see what, what really happens. But I think... Ideally, in the perfect world, if this program works really, really well and this bec- we do become like a leader in this sort of technology, I, I could foresee that the UK, the US, uh, maybe some of our uh, Na- the NATO countries will start purchasing these and we could really ramp up production of, of, of stuff like this and employ a lot of Australians. Yep, I can, I can see that little silver lining in that. Horrendously storm-ridden cloud. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on to this week in Australian history. All right, this week in Australian history, we're covering the 15th to the 21st of February. So February 15th, in fact, I'm going to ask you a question first off. Um, on, On a particular date, Surveyor James McBride at the Fish River near Bathurst uh, discovers gold. We might people might recall sharper listeners because I certainly had to go back and remind myself that it was mentioned in uh, this week in Australian history last week. Uh, near Bathurst discovers gold. It is the first known report of gold, though it is not made public. The Australian oh. gold rushes do not begin until 1851. So my little question first off the bat is what year did, um, yeah, close enough, did surveyor James McBride uh, discover gold near Bathurst? Near Bathurst, but it wasn't made public. It and they wasn't didn't made public, and I couldn't find out why. I didn't know oh, what they, I couldn't why. find. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't find out the, the the secrecy of it. So he discovered gold, but the gold rushes didn't start until. Do you say eighteen fifty one? Eighteen fifty one. Yep. Um, and what year did he actually discover gold, oh, mate? Why can't I just stumble over some gold? Um, <laughs> the fact you're asking me this is it's obviously not like. A few years. It must be a while. So yes, it it was. It was enough to make me ask you that. So you, you've you've deduced correctly. Surveying. I'm just trying to think. Let's say it's got to be. What's that? Eighteen. I'll say eighteen thirty. Twenty years before. Not not far off. Eighteen twenty three. 
Uh, 
and Royal Navy Stoker Ernst Lloyd, Ernest Lloyd survived. So, yeah, another, yeah, another thing I didn't know about, but um, yeah, another horrendous event. I will change the subject. Um, yeah, please, I, I, please do. I was bloody <laughs> stumbling through that thing. Oh, that's all a bit too bloody dark. So and, what do we say? I cut, I cut out part of it too as I'll, well. So if you want to look it up on online, go for it. But yeah, I got to a part and I thought I can't do that. So sorry. Yeah, please change the please change the subject. So a li- what did he say? A living wage of four would be forty eight shillings a week in yep. nineteen fourteen. Uh, that would be three hundred and thirty-six dollars in twenty twenty-three dollars. Three hundred and thirty-six dollars Australian uh, a week. That's not a lot. I don't That's think you could for four people. I don't think you could. You know, you'd be doing well for one person. I don't. Yeah, for a week, three hundred and thirty-six dollars oh. is not going to get you much. Certainly not going to pay any rent. Um, no. Yeah, that's not gonna that that wouldn't even feed a family of four. No, uh, I have a, I have a family of five, and yeah, that's getting close to our our food bill. Well, probably on a fortnight, but yeah, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly right. Oh, okay, but they you know, said that report that more than a living wage should be paid. So yeah, I suppose interesting definition of living wage. Uh, 1983, the Ash Wednesday bushfires in Victoria and South Australia claimed the lives of 71 people in Australia's worst ever fires. 2002, Stephen Bradbury wins Australia's (laughs) first Winter Olympics gold medal in the 1,000-metre short track speed skating event. So I had to... Well, I had to re-watch this. I found, <laughs> I found, I found it on the um, the official Australian Olympic site, so I'll leave that. Um, uh, I'll, I'll leave that link in the the show notes, which you will, which you find you should find on your podcast player when you download it, um, and you'll also find it on the Podbean uh, site. Um, yeah, it's just. It's this is, this video has gone. It's, it's gone viral a few times. I'd be surprised if people haven't seen it, but they may not realise that that's the video we're talking about. Yes, and, and this is the, the the short story is in this speed skating. The uh, Chinese there was there's five people in the race. Two of them uh, were the Chinese team. Two from the um, US team, and Stephen Bradbury, the Australian, was following behind them now he's following close behind them uh and there was one thing right near the end i think it think it was the uh chinese bloke he just reached a bit too far slipped a bit had a bit of a tumble almost ankle tapped his mate who fell into the americans who fell on each other, and all four of the people in front of Stephen Barry, Stephen Bradbury, went crashing into the wall, and Bradbury just skated over the finish line. And it Which, was, uh, oh, it was, it was so. Look, it was funny, it, and as a lot of people have pointed out, he had used that tactic previously, so it was a proven tactic. And he had gotten into the final, so he wasn't just sort of some yeah. bloke who dived out of the the the, um, the audience. Said, "Oh yeah, I'll give this a crack." 
he does deserve the credit for actually getting to the final. If he wasn't good enough to get there, he couldn't have won that. He also uh, was actually awarded the Order of Australia medal for that, um, as he bloody well should have, because it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, and uh, I, I never mentioned this uh, when it happened, but I did see it on the news. He, in 2022, he actually, him, him and his son Flynn on the Sunshine Coast up here in Queensland, he actually saved uh, or rescued four teenage girls from drowning. And oh, he was wow. he was awarded a commendation for brave conduct uh, in Queensland for it. So... He wasn't a one-trick pony. He bloody, you know, 20, 20 years later uh, pulled, pulled four girls that were drowning out of the surf uh, with his son Flynn and, and got a bloody commendation for bravery. So oh. Steve Bradbury, as unlikely as it is, if you are listening to this, good on you, mate. You're a bloody Australian hero. Yep, bloody oath. February 17th, 1788, Lord Howe Island was discovered by HMS Supply. 1882, the first cricket test match at the Sydney Cricket Ground begins. 2003, hundreds of thousands of protesters joined millions more in other cities around the world in protesting the Iraq War. And those were the biggest street protests seen since the Vietnam War. Uh, February 18th, 1793, the first school in the colony opens in an unfinished church building in Sydney. 1958, 200,000 people assemble to meet the Queen Mother in Brisbane. Uh, 2001, four people are killed when a landslide forces a bus into a ravine at Cradle Mountain down in Tassie. Uh, February 19th, 1942, Japanese bombers bombed Darwin during the Pacific War, killing at least 243 people. And we have made that comment before about how the um, uh, attacks on Australia are often overshadowed by the, yeah, admittedly... Everything else that was yeah, happening, yeah. basically. Exactly. Um, understandably. But more bombs were dropped on Darwin than were dropped on Pearl Harbour, which... Is an incredible statistic uh, that I think, you know, uh, our American listeners, keep that little bit of trivia in your back pocket next time someone brings up Australia or, or Pearl Harbor and, and mention that. Yeah, that's a good little stat. I'll remember that one. Uh, 1943, Parliament approves the Defence Citizen Military Forces Act, 1943, introducing conscription for service in the Southwest Pacific War Zone. 1955, the Southeast Asia Collective Defence Treaty, CETO, comes into uh, force. And that, that's actually oh, yeah. um, sort of a, bit, a little bit unknown, the old CETO, but that's actually why we, well, Australia uh, got involved in the Vietnam War. That was our official reasoning for it, our obligation to the CETO Treaty. It was uh, it was meant to be the equivalent of NATO, uh, but it never really had the same sort of... Uh, it, it, the treaty itself didn't actually have the same uh, requirements as NATO, and it kind of was never really um, 
as popular as, say, Noto was or anything like that. But formally, Australians' reasoning for getting involved in the Vietnam War was was CETO, our mm. treaty obligations under CETO. Uh, I suppose any excuse. Uh <laughs> 1998, uh, Zali Stegel became the first Australian to win an individual medal at the Winter Olympics, taking bronze in the downhill slalom. February 20, 1913, King O'Malley drove in the first survey peg to mark the commencement of work on the construction of Canberra. So we can blame him. (laughs) <laughs> for everything that happens since it's yeah. all his fault that's right just like a, driving a stake into the heart of a vampire unfortunately he didn't kill it 1962 perth becomes known as the city of light when astronaut john glenn passes over the city and thousands of external lights are switched on to greet him 2006, Andrew Maillard, convicted of murder in 1995, has his conviction quashed and is released after a high court appeal. And on the home straight now, the last day, February 21st, 1906, 1906, the Bondi Beach Surf Lifesaving Club is established, becoming the first club of its type in the world, which was... Yeah, I knew we had a history of uh, surf lifesaving. Didn't know that it was uh, such a first. Yeah, it is pretty cool. It, there's a good legacy with it. Um, I did surf lifesaving when I was when I was oh, younger. You? Yeah, yeah, I was, a, I, was I did the the nippers uh, as a sport on Sunday morning, and then as I got older, I I did the surf lifesaving patrols and all that kind of stuff. So, um, really cool, good legacy. Um, it's obviously changed a lot since back in the day. It was pretty rudimentary. They used to use a, um, essentially sort of like a big drum, like a big spool of rope, and they would you'd sort of had a bit of a, like a uh, like a sash that would go over, uh, and then as a team you'd run the spool down with the swimmer in the sash, and then they would swim out grab onto the person and then you'd like sort of wind them back in. Oh, um, okay. uh, the problem was is that the that just didn't really work very well because the the swimmers could get tangled in the lines or the the spool if it wasn't spooled out properly could sort of snag and the drag of the rope and like it 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 definitely worked but it it wasn't the most effective way to do it and we don't do that anymore but there is like this big long legacy and tradition of like a lot of surf lifesaving clubs if you go into them these days you'll still see the the sort of i can't remember the name of them but that's sort of the big spool it'll normally be hanging up somewhere and they do bring it down and they do when they do parades and events and stuff like that so it is pretty cool yeah i i i know the spool you're talking about and i've seen them do that thing where they sort of come down there'll be two on the front two on the back and just sort of carrying that that spool so that's a bit of history there oh god i did i did nippers for a little bit i remember that yeah do you remember that one where you had to lie down in the sand and then jump up and run over and uh, grab the um the, yep, the grab the flags of, yep the yeah, little yeah. white pole yeah that was my yeah. favorite i was very good at that um oh, were you? yeah i was very good i won a few competitions and stuff that was my favorite but i'll tell you what it, some people just 
are absolute freaks at it. It, it, it's, it is it, probably that was one of the first times in my entire life that I learned that you can kind of have a natural ability to do something, but to get, you know, to go from zero to like 80% learning how to do something or be good at something's reasonably easily, especially if you've got a bit of, a bit of natural ability, but to go from that 80 to say 90% to be in that top yeah. 10% is just an absolute mountain to get over. You know, the, the level of perfection you need to get to that next level um, is just ridiculous. And I had some really good coaches and I had some really good friends that were doing it as well. And unfortunately, they were a little bit better than me. And I just, I basically had to cut it away because I was like, this is oh. going to consume my entire life if I could <laughs> just to try and get that next <laughs> level, you know. Um, Oh, oh, so interesting exposure. Uh, good, good life lesson. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And finally, uh, finishing out this week in Australian history on February 21st, 1997, former Premier of Western Australia, Carmen Lawrence, is charged with perjury resulting from the Marks Royal Commission. She was found not guilty. And I'm pretty sure, given how she used to come over <laughs> that night, she sat down, breathed a sigh of relief, and cracked open a beer. So, on to the 4X Bottle Top Quiz. Now, these two questions, uh, pardon the sacrilege here, were from Carlton Bottle Tops, but they're still the same type of questions. Um, who knows? The top is always corporate. <laughs> <laughs> so I, well, uh, hmm, you often surprise me with some of these. I don't reckon you're going to get the second one. I reckon you're going to get this first one. So to which section of the orchestra does a triangle belong? And it's not the geometrical <laughs> section. Oh, oh mate, I oh, bloody hell. <laughs> Um, I'm going to guess, I'm just trying to think when I've been to the orchestra, where is the triangle? Like, where are they positioned physically? I'm, I'm thinking they're, cause it's like a per percussion instrument, right? But I, I've also seen them next to the drummer, but I'm not sure if that's, I, I'm going to lock that in, but I'm not sure if that's the case. Is it the percussion? Area locked it in correctly. I had a feeling oh, get that one. So, very good. Yeah, very good. Now I don't know if you even know this game. You might be you might be too young. How many marbles does each player start with in Chinese checkers? I do know Chinese checkers. Oh, uh, yep. I've never actually played it, but. I'm pretty sure it's not even made in China. I'm pretty sure it was invented in Germany. Oh, um, you're kidding me. I was going it, to give that in a bit of detail. Wow. Oh, good. You're good. You're good. <laughs> That's, I know that one fun fact about it, but I have no idea how many you start with. I'm trying to visualize the board. It's, it is quite a few. I'm going to say ah, they're German, so it's got to be an even number. It's probably, I don't know. Like thirty-two or something. 
Oh, it's just a guess. No, it's, it's, it's ten from each of those. So, well, I'm impressed that you. I'm impressed that you are. You knew that. So yeah, uh, it was invented in Germany in 1892 under the the name Sternhalmer as a variation of the older American game Halmer. Uh, the the stern was German for 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 star because it's, it's in a star shape. Yeah. Um, apparently, Halma used a square board. Uh, but the name Chinese checkers originated in the US in the US as a marketing scheme by who's Bill and Jack Pressman in twenty eight. Um, it was originally called Hop Ching Checkers. Like all Halma games, there's a similarity to checkers, but it did not originate in China nor any other part of Asia. And in fact, in China, it's now known as uh, Tiao Chi, uh, literally jump game. And in Japan, the game has a variation called diamond game with slightly different rules. Well, DK. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I'm very, very <laughs> impressed you knew that. I've just Googled it because I was like, when you said there's only 10, I'm like, no way. I've Googled it. And I don't know how I came up with the number of 30 per person. Oh, my goodness. There'd be so many. So there you go. I'm- Apparently one variation of the rules is if there's just two people playing, you each start with 15. So, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah right. Your, your thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, well done again. I thought that oh. I, I thought that last one was going to stump you, but not only did oh. it. Well, you didn't get the the thing, but you you threw out the uh, invented in Germany. So yeah, oh. I did. I yeah. I, don't ask me how I know that. It's sometimes these little little tidbits of information just uh, you know get absorbed into my brain. Don't ask me my sister's birthday, but I'll tell oh. you that Chinese checkers is not Chinese. Uh, same as uh, kiwi fruit. <laughs> Last night, my son, we got some kiwi fruit and he was eating it and he's like, oh, I love kiwis. And I was like, they're not even from New Zealand. And he's like, what do you mean? <laughs> and I said, they're, they're, they're actually Chinese. They're called Chinese gooseberries. It's and his good. his poor little mind just <laughs> broke. It was like everything he's ever learned is just, you know, poor little bloke. He shattered his entire world belief. But there you go. So... If you're listening and you didn't know that kiwi fruit are not from New Zealand, I think it was a marketing thing because they grew really well in New Zealand. And so, you know, they marketed them as that and it kind of, that's what's taken over. Uh, but yeah, kiwis are not from New Zealand. They are a Chinese gooseberries, uh, which gooseberries is a fun word to say. So there you go. Use- <laughs> Anyway, on the bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the Australian r slash Australian sub or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as that helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thanks for listening and tell your mama lover. Thanks, DK. Guard your gooseberries. <laughs> See ya.